Hello and welcome to Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is Sorrow Songs and Silent Schemes. In this week's episode, we will be going over the article titled Go into Wilderness, Evading the Eyes of Others in the Slave Song by Eric Nielsen. This article was published in 2011, and as always, we will be linking it in our show notes as well as sharing the link on our social media. It is so informative and incredible that while we will try to hit many of the main points brought up in it, if you have time, it is very worth a read through yourself if you get a chance. Yes, it is an insanely good read. But anywho, I suppose we should get started. So if you listened last week, you know that we talked about Nat Turner's rebellion and Nat Turner himself. Then we ended by alluding to this week's subject, which kind of piggybacks off of it. Like I mentioned last week, I found this article during research for Turner's Rebellion. And basically, what it's about is slave songs, also known as spirituals and what W.E.B. Du Bois refers to as sorrow songs in his work, The Souls of Black Folk. And even more specifically, how these songs revealed much about the mindset and what I might call group consciousness found in North American slaves. First of all, let's revisit what we talked about during our first lecture set over the comparative study of the evolution of white supremacy in the United States and South Africa. If you'll think back to those lectures, we went over how American colonies' relationship with their slaves was a little different than other areas. One of the main reasons for that is because of how many slaves there were. See, in other places, like the Caribbean and South America, the colonies had a much higher slave population. And while the United States was dependent on a slave force, obviously mostly in the South, the colonizers without fail always outnumbered the amount of slaves. That is, of course, with the exception of the Black Belt states. But even so, while the slave population might have been higher in those areas than the rest of the United States, the population was still nothing compared to the ratio of slaves to colonizers found in other places like South America and the Caribbean. So the relationship between slaves and masters was different comparatively. Gosh, there was so much more interaction between master and slave because of this, and much more interference and consistent surveillance of the slaves going on in the United States as opposed to other areas. And what that resulted in was a consistent suppression of African cultural practices. So while slaves in other colonies were more able to stay closer to their original practices, African Americans were stripped of theirs in a very unique way. So songs were often one of the only ways they were able to incorporate traditions from their heritage. Um, Ren, I'm not saying what you're talking about isn't interesting, but um, honestly, I don't see how this has anything to do with Nat Turner's Rebellion. Gashmo, you are literally always confused, aren't you? But as always, you bring up a pretty good point. I haven't actually talked about how it ties into that yet. So, slave songs were known to hold much more meaning than just an ode to old African traditions. They were also thought to serve as a way for slaves to work around the rigid and ever-present gaze of controlling white people. You know the song from the title of the article, Go in the Wilderness? Well, it is said by some that the song was used by Turner and his fellow conspirators to spread word about their secret meetings that took place in the nearby woods. Now, this is not something that can expressly be confirmed because it is more based on legend than overt facts, but like the article quotes from the work of a man by the name of James Kelly, the story itself 
not the proof of it is what makes the story true part of the significance of slave songs is how they offer this sense of togetherness and hope in the wake of a tragically inescapable fate many times it is made to seem that black people were silently oppressed as slaves that they helplessly accepted their life as what it was and nothing more but that is just a disguised version of the happy slave trope in the age of slavery there was a burning passion and always present desire to break away from their life in bondage runaway plans and rebellion schemes were of course ever present too because of this but because of their hypersensitive awareness of white ears they had to find a way around their eavesdropping and it wasn't just eavesdropping that was a problem because slaves were often kept in line to put it very crudely by very intense tactics even if a slave wasn't doing anything to arouse suspicion they were at constant risk of getting punished there's another quote used in the article and this one is from frederick Douglass's my bondage and my freedom that says the man unaccustomed to slaveholding would be astonished to observe how many floggable offenses there are in the slaveholders catalog of crimes and how easy it is to commit any one of them even when the slave lease intends it a slaveholder bent on finding fault will hatch up a dozen a day if he chooses to do so and each one of these shall be of a punishable description a mere look word or motion a mistake accident or want of power are all matters for which a slave may be whipped at any time and again, I think this overzealous enthusiasm to punish that many slaveholders had was a product of the completely uncapped power they were consistently allotted in the United States. Douglas also mentions this constant feeling of nakedness in the life of a slave, as if even the basic privacy of clothing, both metaphorically and literally, were far from them because of their master's lack of regard for their autonomy. So more than understandably, slaves wanted to find a place that offered them some kind of privacy. And Nielsen argued that they often found refuge in the wilderness. One thing that's interesting is how there was so much freedom linked to the wilderness for slaves. It's made even further intriguing because many slave songs were based off of Christian songs, and Christianity takes a less than favorable view of the wilderness. In Christianity, a lot of times it's like, um, like, the woods seem kind of scary, and I'm not sure if you should mess with that. IDK, seems sketchy. They should probably leave all that mysterious wilderness alone. But that was very much not the case in the life of many slaves. Take Nat Turner himself. He hid in the woods, aka the wilderness, for months after the rebellion he led before he was found and then put to death. And that's not just indicative of him. So many other slaves were able to escape because of their ability to hide in nearby woods and forests. Nielsen points out that sentiment is further illustrated in the works like Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which is an autobiography by a woman named Harriet Jacobs. And by the way, that woman led a quite remarkable life, so I hope to fill you in more on her in the future. But to stay goal-orientated, Nielsen brings up Harriet Jacobs' work because of how it has a lot of the same elements brought up in Nielsen's article. Jacobs talks about the continuous presence of her master and the importance of the wilderness as a form of finding time away from prying eyes and also as a place of refuge when she was able to finally make her escape. 
She uses incredible imagery when talking about nature, just like Nat Turner himself had. Jacobs, too, describes this sense of wonder in her, quote, wilderness moment, as she connects on a deep level with the beauties of the wilderness. But because we are going to dive into her a little bit more at some point in the future, I won't go too much into her story. What I do think that we should bring up before we move on from her is talk more in detail about her relationship with her master. One thing to note about Jacobs is that she was routinely, and trigger warning here, sexually harassed by her master. Now, this is not something we bring up lightly, but gender issues are something we haven't yet had a chance to explore in great detail in our podcasts. While we have brought up the subject in quick snippets, particularly in our podcast over interracial marriages, the case of Harriet Jacobs presents an opportunity to go more into detail about what black women were often subject to when doomed to a life in bondage. Because imagine all the horrors of sexual harassment that we all know and then amplify that with someone who has the mindset that you are their legal property. It is gut-wrenching to even think about the type of fear Jacobs must have endured with each day that passed under the gaze of her slaveholder. Just as we spoke of before, there was no privacy to be had. She couldn't even mourn at her mother's grave without her master following behind and demanding to be a part of even her most sacred and private moments. It's just so terrifying. And it's no wonder that a person who is forced to have such a tragic experience would turn to the wilderness for freedom in more ways than one. I hope it eases all of your minds to know that Jacobs did escape and she went on to lead a long and quite extraordinary life. And as for her mode of escape, she survived by living in her grandmother's attic for quite some time, which was so small she couldn't even stand in it. One of the many things that is so notable about this is that while she was made to live in that tiny space, while whatever weather conditions she was subject to were insanely harsh as she had, quote, nothing but shingles protecting her from the scorching summer sun, while she had to live with mice and other rodents crawling on her bed and bugs everywhere, all of this was a small price to pay to rid herself of her horrid life before. Conditions might have been insanely severe, but she found so much peace in that now she was finally in control of her own life. She was seriously such a brave woman, and I think she encapsulates how there are few things, if any at all, that are worse than the chains of slavery. But again, to bring it back to the subject at hand, that freedom and peace she felt by the less than comfortable living situation in the attic was often centered around how close it was to nature. As I mentioned, literally the only thing that separated her from the outside world was a few thin shingles. So there is a rebirth of this concept that the wilderness can provide such a strong sense of aloneness, privacy, and freedom to a peoples that had been stripped of those things. Now, there is one other main thing that stuck out to us when we both read Nielsen's article that we haven't mentioned yet. It is something found in the work of The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. It is something he refers to as the double consciousness that he believed to be present in all African Americans. To read a quote that sums it up rather nicely, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, 
this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looked on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his twoness, an American, Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings. And I think that is such an astute observation. Think about the lack of representation or poor representation black people are routinely subject to. Black people may no longer wear physical chains in the way African American slaves were subject to, but as a community, black people are forever assigned into this sense of otherness, of guests in the American experience. And because of this, many black people find themselves holding two versions of themselves. One, a palatable and often whitewashed version, and the other, their true self that is only deemed appropriate in the privacy of an inner circle or the safety of home. And in his work, Du Bois uses these words like hidden frequently. He also suggests that in a way, the slave songs that we've been talking about serve several purposes. One, to practice African traditions that would otherwise be lost to time. Another is to use a sort of call to action or to spread awareness about meetings like for Nat Turner's rebellion. And another layer of them is this double consciousness, this veil, as he refers to it, almost as an unspoken kinship and solidarity that fellow slaves could find in one another, something that was untouchable by the controlling whims of a white master that carried a sense of privacy and hope. This is also immensely telling in relation to the image of black people in media. Like we have mentioned many times, black people are consistently branded as up to no good, as always acting shady and keeping secrets, as forever plotting something wicked. If I had to guess, I think that that is partly in response to the complete and utter lack of comprehension in things like slave songs that white people held. Slaveholders probably did feel like their slaves were frequently trying to find ways to converse without their slaveholder present, but like, of course they would want that. This whole podcast, we've been talking about the lack of any and all privacy black people were given, so they weren't being shady, they were just trying to find ways to keep white people out of their freaking business. And even when they were hatching plans to bring down white supremacy, while deluded white people thought that they were devious and evil, um, no, that makes them freaking awesome and honestly iconic. And that desire for privacy, like many long-lasting scars of slavery, is still very commonly found in today's black communities. It does not stem from this wicked place of secrets. It stems from utter necessity of safety. There are so many common practices within the black community that are made out in a sinister light that are, in actuality, in the interest of maintaining this privacy and safety. Being invited into black spaces is a big deal, and that's why it is insulting when non-black people insert themselves into intimate moments or showcase a lack of understanding of the black experience. It's another reason why attempts at regurgitation of black culture in mainstream media or the appropriation of black practices falls short and are obviously written by outsiders looking in. They lack the double consciousness that Du Bois spoke of. We mentioned this earlier, but black people are made to feel like permanent strangers in American society. 
And yet, people have the audacity to take those same practices that they ostracize and the remnants of black culture we have been able to keep private and maintain after it was stripped from us and copy it, thus creating a caricature of black people all for the sake of entertainment. And to loop right back around again to Nat Turner's rebellion, one of the biggest lasting effects of the event was the restrictions that were put on black people's ability to hold private meetings. Now, from what we have illustrated today, I mean, that's hard to imagine how it was even possible to make it more restrictive for them to have meetings. Black people were already given no personal space, both metaphorically and quite literally. And along with the restrictions that were also placed on limiting slave education, I think it sheds light on something particularly well. Not only was it white fear, like we've mentioned many times before, but it's also this total confusion on how to control the black population. On top of that, it marks a clear expiration of slavery, because they had been trying their darndest to make uprisings impossible, to squelch any whispers of free thinking among slaves. But no matter how hard white people tried to snuff out the light and hunger for freedom in slaves, they never really could. Even if they tried to overcorrect in the other direction, giving slaves what they thought would lead to happy life, nobody living would choose a life of slavery over a life of freedom. Just like the case of Harriet Jacobs, living in poor conditions and facing endless obstacles Everything she faced as a free woman dimmed in comparison to the anguish she knew in slavery. And that's in many ways what performative progressiveness reeks of today. That same disgusting rhetoric used by slaveholders. I treat you well, don't I? I'm a good master. Well, they weren't good. And neither are people who use cheap political moves that only serve to push a narrative that things are going to get better in a system that is broken. Call them out, Elisa. And with that, we are going to take a break, get some tea, and we will be right back with you. And now a word from our sponsors. This week is made possible by Elisa's Ice Cold Fingers. Do you have a friend that's always cold? Do they suffer from flu-like symptoms, shakes and shivers, sniffles, and just ice-cold limbs? Well, Elisa's that friend to many. No matter what she might do, no matter how hard she tries, she also just can't get warm. If you'd like to ensure that she has the sweaters and scarves she needs to make it through the harsh winter, even if it's just fall, then consider donating to Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi, which can be found on any of their social medias. Elisa's ice-cold fingers. Because sometimes drinking hot tea is a means of survival. If you want to find Jesus, go in the wilderness, go in the wilderness, go in the wilderness. Want to find Jesus, go in the wilderness, leaning on the Lord. Mother, brothers, sisters, go in the wilderness, go in the wilderness. Go in the wilderness, mother, brother, sisters, go in the wilderness, leaning on the Lord. Jesus is waiting to meet you in the wilderness, 
Meet you in the wilderness. Meet you in the wilderness. Jesus is waiting to meet you in the wilderness. Leaning on the Lord. All right, we're back. And if you are blown away by the vocals that you just absorbed... That would be the voice of the lovely Quatisha Austin, which is Elisa's mom. Also with backup vocals of the talented Damari George Mackay Austin, which is Elisa's brother. Yes, she so graciously blessed our ears with her <laughs> vocals and helped us out with that. We thought it would be really cool to incorporate the song, obviously the song from the article, and give you a snippet of that part of Black culture. Yeah. So thank you, Mama Austin. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> what are you having for tea today, Elisa? Today, I'm having a tiramisu tea blend. Not a sponsor. <laughs> it is a black tea with some white chocolate. It has some roasted coffee beans and a mix of powdered creamers. Yes, but it's really good. It's very sweet because it also has some sugar in there. But yeah, this is my first time having it. It was actually a gift Ren, which you know, it was a gift <laughs> to Ren from a dear friend. Yes, one of my bestest friends. <laughs> what are you having, Ren? Today I'm feeling a little fancy, so I'm having literally one of the fanciest teas on this earth. <laughs> it's called Downy Jasmine Pearl, or Jasmine Downy Pearl. All of a sudden, I don't know which order it's in. But yeah, <laughs> it's really, really good. Uh, it's a Chinese green tea that is scented with jasmine. And they come in these little coiled balls. And then the longer you steep it, they unfoil. And it's like, whoosh. So cool. But yeah, very classy. Um, two very different palettes <laughs> today. <laughs> yes. So who's your artist this week, Elisa? My artist this week is Will J. He's an amazing artist, and I've been a fan of his for quite a while, ever since Disney Dudes and I Am Five, which if you know, you know. <laughs> um. He uses his musical and online platforms to address issues that resonate with Asian Americans, but also address things such as performative heteronormativity and toxic masculinity. He recently released his perfection album, but I am going to recommend his song, I Can Only Write My Name. It's a beautiful song with a beautiful music video that talks about the rejection of his culture and the interest of fitting in when he was younger and how as he got older, he wanted to reconnect with his family, his culture, and ultimately himself. Definitely check it out. So, Ren, who's your artist this week? You'd think I'd be anxious to follow him up because of how much we love him, but actually, <laughs> I'm super excited about this artist. My artist this week is Linda Diaz. First of all, I found her a few months back with her song Magic, and I totally loved it. But it's only been the past few weeks that I've gotten into her other music, and wow, I'm kicking myself for not looking into it sooner. She's got some straight-up bops. I don't even know if that word is cool anymore. <laughs> But I mean, use it because it fits so well. It's probably not. We're cool never trying that. to be cool. Exactly. Her stuff has this way of getting you into the headspace where you can just vibe and relax. At the same time, though, they carry enough energy in them that it gives them such a depth and flavor. My song that I'm recommending today is Honesty Cool Company Remix. Go check it out if you are in the mood to vibe. Sounds like that's what I need to do later because I'm in the mood to vibe. <laughs> Ren, who's the activist this week? I love her. <laughs> I'm so excited to tell you about her. Our activist this week is Emmy Salida, and she has a YouTube channel. And basically her goal with the channel is to serve as a voice that she needed when she was 16 and felt super alone. 
Emmy is asexual and has done a lot of work to normalize asexuality and has fought to have it included in the LGBTQ plus community. And honestly, I can't explain how important people like her are. I knew that I was asexual when I was 15. That's almost 10 years ago now, believe it or not. And while it's been a privilege to watch the community grow, it has also been an insanely hard journey to find acceptance in myself when the whole rest of the world was against me. It was so hard back then. Nobody took it seriously. Nobody understood how it felt super isolating and super lonely. And things have gotten a little bit better in the past few years when it comes to ace visibility, but that is a direct result of people like Emmy who are brave enough to be open and proud about their asexuality and put in the work to help others feel less alone, as well as being valid in their journey. Thank you, Emmy, and I may not be 15 and lonely anymore, but that's because I have people in my community like you who help us feel stronger and more seen. Much love to you. How about the news, Elisa? What's going on? For news this week, let's take another look at the ICE detention centers. A whistleblower by the name of Don Wooten filed a medical negligence complaint that has some alarming allegations, to say the least. First, she alleges that they are allowing and demanding workers to work while they are waiting for their COVID test results. They allow the transfer of detainees after they have tested positive for COVID-19, and they're basically being purposefully negligent with the spread of COVID within these centers, which mirrors what is happening in prisons across the United States, which if you don't think this is a veiled attempt at ethnic cleansing, you're not paying enough attention. The lack of sanitation and rampaging illness is something we already knew. However, a new allegation and the one that has gained the most uproar in the media is that they're performing mass hysterectomies on people within these camps. And while these allegations are still under investigation and ICE and their supporters urge skepticism, let's keep in mind that this allegation is not one that does not have historical precedence in the United States. There is a chilling quote from NPR's article on this issue where Jamil Fields Allsbrook from the Center for American Progress states, The United States has a long and sordid history of reproductive coercion and forced sterilization, particularly targeting Black Latina, and Native American women, as well as women with disabilities and incarcerated women. As intersectional feminists, none of us can let this go unaddressed. We look back in history and condemn horrific practices, yet they're happening under our noses today, and we can't allow this to be swept under the rug of American exceptionalism. We have to force the people in charge to hold them accountable. Call your representatives, Call the UN. Don't stop talking about this. Their lives are depending on us to keep caring. Elisa, yet again, marvelously put, as always. Um, I think that's it for this week. So we're going to wrap it up here. But just a reminder, please come interact with us tomorrow on social media. It is our social interaction day. So come comments on what we have said, please. <laughs> Give us some attention. <laughs> also, if you're feeling generous... You can always donate on our Ko-Fi, which we always talk about. <laughs> but we do have some exciting news that should be coming out within the next couple of weeks. We'll have a more formal announcement later, but it will be regarding the content that we're creating and our goals for this podcast. So look forward to that. Also, look forward to seeing what we're doing next week for our episode topic that we will probably announce this coming Wednesday. Until then, take care and bye.